Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Oh my goodness, it feels like it's been 85 billion trillion years since I've recorded an episode for you guys. So sorry, sorry, sorry for my lackluster immune system. My bad. I mean, I can't help it. You know how it is. Anyways, you guys, um, I hope everybody's doing well. It's a, It's been a really nice weather week here in Anywhere USA. No complaints. Um, as you can hear, I'm not like Wheezy F Baby, the F is for front door. So no more upper respiratory issues and all that good stuff. Ugh. I really do appreciate you all for understanding why I had to take this little break here. And I really did push it in September. I really thought that I was better, but I really was nowhere near. But now I am back and better. And I, again, would like to thank you all for coming back and listening. I know you could listen to anyone, and I am so glad that you choose to listen to me. I also want to give you a big thank you for continuing to spread the What Had Happened word to everyone. I super appreciate your support and listenership. I swear you are all so amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. Welcome back, Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juno, Wasilla, Sitka, and Nome, Alaska. Hi, Lewiston, Bangor, South Portland, and Auburn, Maine. Hey, you all over in Manchester, uh, Nashua, Concord, Dover, and Derry, New Hampshire. What's good, Jackson, Biloxi, Meridian, Tupelo, and Olive Branch, MI, Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter, I, Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter, I, Humpback, Humpback, I. I see you, Los Angeles, San Diego, Sacramento, Oakland, Fresno, and Calabasas. Welcome back, Cheyenne, Casper, Gillette, Larimer, and Rock Springs, Wyoming. Thank you so much for tuning in. Portugal, Namibia, Vietnam, Poland, Malta, Australia, the United Kingdom, and La República de Panama. Love you all. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group. Follow all the social accounts if you want to. You know I'm bad at it. I don't do this. I should, but I don't. Um, too busy juggling my own. Like, can I, can I get them? Just like, anywho. Uh, 
there's also, as you know, the what had happened email account. You can send me an email. Hey, Kimberly, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Keep that clean, please, and thank you. Also, if you have any true crime stories that you would like to suggest that you think that our listeners would be interested in hearing, let me know, and I will get on it. Some of you have already done that, and I deliver. Uh, let's see here. All of this information as far as well as my references can be found in the description box per the usual so last episode i discussed the may 1997 murder of 7-year-old Sharice Iverson at the Prima Donna Casino in Prim Nevada at the hands of 18-year-old Jeremy Strohmeyer today is a compilative episode I'll be telling you what had happened when love sours before the ink dried and marriage licenses were processed. Today's cases will delve into a couple of cases of murder whilst on honeymoon. Stars and hearts swirled around Karen Waltz's head in late 1987 when she actually it was like mid-1987 sorry stand corrected, when she met chiropractor and author Scott Rostin. The beautiful and sweet 26-year-old masseuse was enamored immediately upon her first rehabbing session with Scott, who'd been recovering from an accident. Karen was the second daughter born to Richard and Roberta Waltz in Florida. When Richard and Roberta broke up, both girls were raised by their mother. Growing up, Roberta worked exceptionally hard to provide her children with the best education and upbringing possible. Karen was an athletic girl, and as a child, she loved dancing, swimming, tai chi, and taekwondo. Although Karen had a multitude of interests and passions, she, learned more, she leaned more towards helping others and decided to attend school for massage therapy. Whilst in school, Karen began dating a handsome carpenter named Todd. The two got along well and shared many similar interests. The relationship was moving along smoothly when Karen graduated and was hired as a licensed masseuse at Hunter's Run, which is a resort in Boynton Beach, Florida. One fateful day, Karen picked up a co-worker shift. On that day, Scott Ronston ended up on her massage table. Sparks between the tall, dark-haired chiropractor and the beautiful blonde flew instantly. It wouldn't take Chuck Woolery and the studio audience of the love connection to see their chemistry. You didn't need all of that. The man on the table who had shown up for his scheduled appointments to rehab a recent slip down the stairs was Scott Rostin, who was born June 3, 1951 in the Bronx to Cy and Sophia Rostin. He spent his youth in New Jersey, and his parents were in chiropractics. In 1978, Scott and his parents emigrated to Israel, where they opened an unlicensed chiropractic clinic. Now, this is where shit gets a little bit... Eh. Okay, so, Scott asserts that when he refused a bribe to marry the niece of a neighbor near the end of 1979. 
He claims to have been falsely arrested, drugged, brutalized, beaten, and locked away in a mental hospital for over two months at the behest of the, quote, Israeli mafia, unquote. When Scott was released, the Rostin family fled Israel and returned to the U.S. In early 1987, Scott paid to have 1,000 copies of the novel he penned, Nightmare in Israel, published. Shortly after the book's release, which sold one copy, Palm Beach County sheriffs responded to a 911 call from Scott's parents claiming that two Israeli men in a white van attempted to kidnap Scott outside a shopping mall. Scott claimed that the men shouted in Hebrew, Israel wants you. Scott said he broke away from his captors and shot one of the men before speeding away in his Toyota. When interviewed by the Palm Beach Post, Scott said, Israel took its best shot and they blew it. Scott began courting Karen, like, shortly after all of this kerfuffle and there is not a like definitive time frame so yeah but it's believed that she didn't know about the book she didn't know about the quote-unquote Israeli mafia she didn't know about this alleged incident of attempted kidnapping she didn't know any of that. This is what she knew. She knew that they shared many of the same interests, especially as it pertained to health and physical fitness. Scott treated her to expensive dates and he doted on her. Coworkers and friends would say that Karen was deeply in love with Scott, but she also enjoyed the lifestyle that he provided her, which was something that she had, had never experienced before. Uh, that June, Scott moved to Santa Monica, California to open a chiropractic office or at least to try to like branch out or whatevs. So the two began a long distance relationship. If you've ever been in one, it's not for the faint at heart. For sure. Like you totally have to be like all about that life and trying to make it work and like visiting and filling those voids with communication and missing each other it's a lot it's definitely not for the faint of heart so in december when karen flew out to california for christmas scott proposed and when karen returned to florida she was beaming soon after she was packing up her things and relocating to california to be with scott because duh that's where her man is and while karen was hope you know, had hopes of having like a formal wedding in June of 88. Scott had different thoughts and plans and he was like the king of persuasion. So Karen had introduced Scott to like her mother, Roberta, like a couple of times. And um, Roberta didn't think so highly of him. Roberta thought that there was something off. Something in the milk is off. Some in the milk ain't right. So she did, she thought that while Scott presented himself as being perfect, she saw past his well-coiffed hair, his impeccable clothing and finery. 
While he presented himself as being wealthy, she had a sinking suspicion that he was a fraud. When Karen showed off the pear-shaped diamond ring Scott proposed to her with, Roberta suggested that Karen have the ring appraised. Questioning the authenticity, of course, but I'm sure she finessed that in a way so that Karen didn't think that her mother thought it was fake. Soon after that visit, the two would end up going to Las Vegas, where they eloped alone in a strip chapel, February 4th, 1988. They then returned home to pack for their honeymoon cruise to Mexico, which departed February 6th. And sidebar, I saw a an investigation discovery covering of this case and that's linked in the description box well scott had a roommate scott and karen they had a roommate and the roommate said that he was like sitting in the living room watching tv or something like that living his best life thinking he probably had the place to himself when all of a sudden scott and karen come in the door all bubbly and you know we just got married and he's like and yet you came back here oh and they're like oh but we go on our honeymoon in a couple of days and he's like and yet you still came right back here and then like they all like kumbaya or something like (laughs) funny stuff so here's where we get to the not so funny stuff actually none of this is funny but as the cruise line piloted along fellow patrons observed severe cracks in the newlyweds marriage like off the rip it was said that during dinner scott was visibly infuriated with karen for not knowing proper place setting etiquette and as well as like eating sweets and stuff i mean like their buddies were temples i am so sure that he did not think that it was very attractive which is like really shitty bro you guys are on your honeymoon treat yourself let her eat the fucking honey bun bro if like this is what's making her happy while she is on cloud nine being married to you like in like the first days get over yourself so anyways he was like super pissed off at her because she didn't know proper etiquette which in a way kind of um i guess made him look less than what he was presenting himself to be as as well so i mean like there was a lot like people could see that there might have been a little bit of griftiness or conmanness or fraud and you know she not being in that world long didn't know better she didn't know the difference between her salad fork and her dinner fork sorry it happens but you can learn So, you know, they cruise around and it's going pretty well outside of these little spats and sharp looks that I'm sure that he was probably giving her. And in the wee hours of February 13th, as the star dancers voyage neared its end, Scott was seen arguing with a woman at 3 a.m. covered in scratches. Scott alerted the ship's crew that whilst running with his wife on the deck, a gust of wind blew his bride overboard. 
I'm sorry, I can't say this with like a straight face. You know this. The ship's captain called bullshit off the rip because the winds were a calm five miles per hour, 20 miles off the coast of San Diego, where she would have fallen overboard as they headed towards the port of Long Beach. When the explanation was immediately shot down, Scott then said that Karen had tragically fallen overboard and as he tried to save her, she slipped from his grasp. That made no sense either as the railing was three and a half feet high and Karen was five foot three. When asked about the triangular gouges and the four inch scratch on his face, Scott said he'd hit his head on a control box in a gangway. When that was investigated, there were no indications of Scott having sustained any injuries by way of the control boxes. The control, the control boxes had no protrusions that would cause the damage Scott sustained, and there was no blood, hair, or tissue found. Ten hours after going overboard, the U.S. Coast Guard recovered the body of Karen Waltz Rostin in Pacific Waters, 30 miles southwest of San Diego. Due to pockets of air in the clothing Karen was wearing when she went overboard, her body was found floating. When the medical examiner made his notations, he stated that Karen had made, had Karen been conscious when she hit the water, her movements in the water attempting to swim would have released any type of any trapped air in her clothing, causing it to basically cling to her body, thusly concluding that she was unconscious when she went overboard, subsequently causing her to drown. The medical examiner also made notation of the warping of her neck, bruised hemorrhaging around her neck, and retinal hemorrhaging in her eyes, which were all signs of manual strangulation. The, med the medical examiner also found rubber from the ship's track embedded in her clothing, indicating that she was forced down and strangled. On board the Star Dancer, one of Karen's earrings was found 11 feet away from the ship's railing, and strawberry blonde strands of hair were also found in that area. Long Beach authorities arrested Scott for the murder of his bride and held him without bail at the Terminal Island Detention Center. It was while detained that Scott told authorities a third version of what had happened to Karen. Great day in the morning. Okay, and this is... Fuck it. Dipster juice. Okay, because, you know, it can't get any wilder than this, right? Yes, it can. I'm going to tell you exactly what he said. So, in this third version of what had happened to Karen... Scott told authorities that he was innocent and he said that he and Karen were attacked by two Israeli assassins who were on board the Star Dancer to kill him at the behest of the Israeli government because of the book he published 11 months before exposing the corruption and crimes committed during his time in Israel. It sounded outlandish as fuck. A year later, February 1989, Scott Rostin went on trial for the second-degree murder of his wife of nine days, Karen Waltz Rostin. 
In the defense's opening statements, attorney David Kenner told jurors that there were, in fact, two Israeli men on board the Star Dancer at the time of the Rostin's honeymoon. As absurd and movie-like as the international espionage may seem, it's a very real state <laughs> stating. It's very real, stating, quote, it may at first blush appear impossible, contrived, unbelievable, but these kinds of things do happen in the world of international intrigue. Yeah, he said that. Um, the defense chose to use the two Israeli passengers as their only defense. They did not dispute the medical examiner's findings, nor witness testimony of the couple's heated moments during the cruise. While the defense worked hard to point the blame at two cruise ship patrons, the defense conveniently were unable to locate. The prosecution came to play hardball, though and surprised the defense when they called one of the two Israeli passengers. <laughs> they, they called him. The defense claimed had killed Karen on the last day. So Maurice Haziza testified that he was not an Israeli agent. Instead, he was a wedding photographer on vacation with his companion, Amelia Rohn. Maurice said that the two had attended a friend's wedding where Maurice photographed the event. Following the wedding, they went on vacation on a vacation of their own. They visited Disneyland and Universal Studio before their Mexican cruise. The jury found the defense's strategy to be completely outlandish and agreed that the prosecution had proven their case. After two and a half days of deliberation, the Los Angeles Federal Court jury found Dr. Scott Robin Rostin guilty of second-degree murder on the high seas. In October 1988, Scott was sentenced nine i'm sorry 89 scott was sentenced by u.s district judge james eidman to life in prison calling the murder one of the cruelest crimes he'd ever seen at the time there were new sentencing guidelines in place that would have made that life sentence a 14-year term after appealing in 1994 scott was resentenced to a term of 33 years and nine months I haven't seen any further information on Scott Rostin or his possible release in the future. I also refused to buy the book because I didn't know how the money would be distributed. I'm not going to pay. I'm not putting money on this man's commissary. It's just not fucking happening. I'm sorry. So there's that. Um, let's move on to our second case. It's really moving by fast. Um, let's see here. On to our second case. I'll be telling you about what had happened to Cody Johnson days after he made Jordan Lynn Graham his bride. Cody Lee Johnson was born April 8, 1988 in San Jose, California to David, Clarence, and Sherry Ann Johnson. Uh, there's not a lot of information backstory-wise on his upbringing, but in 2002, he moved to Montana with his mother. Cody was described by his friends and family as being a fun-loving car enthusiast who loved life, was kind, and caring. He worked at NORAD, which is the North American Aerospace Defense Command, where he loved his work and enjoyed the friendships cultivated there. 
When 24-year-old Cody met 21-year-old Jordan Lynn Graham at a church luncheon, he was immediately smitten with her, telling his mother pretty quickly into the courtship that he wanted to marry her. The two had the same wants and goals of having a family and seemed to be heading towards becoming a family. While the two appeared to have much in common, there were differences that were undeniable about the two. Cody was more extroverted. He loved to make people around him happy. He loved cars and firing weapons with his friends. He was just, he loved children. He was just a big ball of energy. Jordan loved kids too, but she was also described as being more introverted, reserved, conservative, and religious like her family. Remaining abstinent until marriage was important to her, which Cody respected. Cody more was more affectionate and doting, and he would take Jordan on dates where she was more standoffish, and at times she would have friends accompany them. Because, you know, we need to make room for the Holy Spirit. Cody poured himself into the relationship while she remained cool and aloof. The two never even displayed any affection towards each other. There was no hand-holding, flirting, or kissing between the two, at least not around other people. I mean, hey, they very well could have been a very private PDA. You know, no PDA. We don't do public displays of affection. It could have been very mild and private. And there's nothing wrong with that. Chef, don't judge. Despite the differences, their common dreams and hopes for the future remained the same, as well as their beliefs, because, you know, Cody actually really started to go to church and became an active member of the church community when he began seeing Jordan, and everyone saw that as a positive for him. So, despite the differences, on, um, in December 2012, Jordan announced on Twitter, quote, he proposed best early Christmas ever. While she was excited to announce her engagement and plan the wedding, it was said that she had her reservations about marrying Cody. It was as if she was in love with the idea of having a wedding and the word wife. However, the reality of being a wife and what the role entailed scared her shitless. Friends of Jordan recounted text exchanges with her where she expressed her fears and doubts as to whether marrying Cody was going to be a mistake or not. Her friends would tell her that only she could make that determination, but she absolutely needed to talk to Cody if she was having second thoughts. Like, it's only fucking fair, right? Despite this really good advice from her friends, Jordan opted to keep her reservations to herself and just go forward with the planned nuptials. Jordan had, she even had a song penned and recorded as a surprise for Cody to be played at their reception, which whilst a lovely gesture, some of the lyrics were kind of foreboding. Jordan spoke of Cody and she climbing to a higher place and falling, but being still being each other's and whoo, it was a doozy. These lyrics, you know, that she was going to present to her groom. So on June 29th, 2013, Jordan 
who was described as being visibly shaken and unhappy bawled her eyes out as she made her procession down the aisle to stand in front of her family and Cody and promise till death do they part while the overall optics like the group photos and toasts <laughs> that song made it seem as if the lovebirds were off to a magical life together jordan was still miserable and now that she had just said i do she was afraid of consummating her marriage in a text to a friend jordan said I don't know if this was the right thing to do. So much happened last night. I just don't know. And this is like the day after the wedding. And her friend asked and she was like, girl, are you referring to the wedding or in the room afterwards? To which Jordan replied, quote, being married and after the wedding. In response, like her friend was like, girl, what happened? And Jordan was like, I don't want to talk about it via text. She said, quote, I'd rather talk about it, about what happened, not text about it. When Jordan and her friend did see each other, Jordan curled up in a ball on the couch and cried, but she never actually said what did or didn't happen. All she really got from Jordan was that she and Cody had a horrible time together and it was not enjoyable for either but she was not willing to go into detail or divulge. Throughout the week, Jordan would continually text complaining about her new marriage. In one text, she stated that she knew he was going to want to engage in sex, and she just wasn't interested, following up by saying that she was going to tell Cody that, like, yo, I'm going to give him the I just started my period spiel, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to freak out yeah um so when she was asked again like have you discussed your fears and apprehensiveness at the idea of having sex with cody and the what if of cody wanting to engage in kinky sex acts um with her that jordan feared jordan told her friend that it was her responsibility to make her husband happy even if it made her miserable jordan didn't want to face scrutiny ridicule or judgment like if she immediately ended her marriage after a week i'm sure she probably felt like all eyes were going to be on her like what's wrong with you you can't even be married for a week that is like a farce it's a slap in the face in the institution of marriage um you know there's a lot and then of course like feeling shunned for annulling because it's not even like you're getting divorced you didn't if you haven't consummated it and it's like a few days and it's an annulment so there's that but nonetheless her early 20 something brain went straight to the worst case scenarios of what other people would think about her instead of going with her heart because i promise you shit would have been so much smoother if she did whoo so she just wasn't with it like all day every day the first week she just was not with it and she was letting her friends know at every turn 
just how miserable she was. And it was just off-putting to her friends. Like, why did you even marry him? So, nonetheless, Jordan tells Cody that she has a surprise for him. So, he called his father-in-law, and he cancels their plans to go kayaking. And then he calls another friend with whom he had plans to go golfing with, and he cancels the plans. And he's like, hey, bro, you know... I know we're supposed to go golfing, but Jordan says she has a surprise for me. And he's like over the moon because obviously he's like super confused, but he's just going with the flow. He's just like riding the wave with her. You know, he's patient. He's understanding. This is all a big change for Jordan. And especially since she has had absolutely no sexual history this was, you know, a very important time. And so he was going to be as easy peasy as he possibly could be. He was being a super duper supportive husband. He was doing the right thing. Period. So following church services together, like the two had dinner at Dairy Queen and then they drove to Glacier National Park. And this is all on July 7th. But it was said earlier that day, like, whilst they were, like, at church and stuff, um, I think it was, like, during the lunch portion of that day, that he had told a couple of his buddies that, you know, Jordan says she has a surprise for me, and he was super excited. Like, as you should be, right? Poor guy. Sunset at The Loop, a popular destination, is romantic and breathtaking, I'm sure. The couple climbed, the, the, they, they drove up there, and then they, like, climbed over a retaining wall along going to the Sun Road. Then the two climbed down an extremely rocky slope to the cliff's narrow edge. While on the cliff's edge, Jordan would later claim uh, that she and Cody argued over the state of their marriage. And when he advanced towards her, almost as like a force of habit or a reaction, she pushed Cody back with both hands without thinking of their surroundings, causing him to plummet over the cliff's edge to his death into the into a ravine which was approximately two to three hundred feet below. Jordan then returned to the vehicle and drove an hour to her home. While she drove home, she texted friends, but never told them of Cody's fall, nor did she ever attempt to acquire emergency services, help, you know, to help her husband, who has definitely hurt himself all the way. Instead... In her text that night, she told her friend that she was going to talk to Cody. And when the friend said that she would be praying for them both, Jordan quipped, quote, But seriously, if you don't hear from me at all tonight, something happened. When Jordan went home, she set up a dummy email account, a la Ryan Jenkins from episode 12, Jasmine Fiore. Remember that? When he had her cell phone and he was sending text messages and emails to her friends and family inquiring as to where she was 
or, you know, as her, and then texting them from his phone, like, hey, blah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, so she's setting it up, she is definitely setting it up, on July 8th, when Cody failed to show up to work, they immediately notified his family, and so the fam, the family and the friends were alarmed, and they reported him missing, like, off the rip, and Jordan was said, like, later on that day, like, when she was at work, her friend said that Jordan was, like, the happiest she had ever been. Jordan was skipping throughout work and the parking lot, eating an ice cream cone unfazed by the disappearance of her husband. So when Jordan's friend slash coworker described this, like I said, she said that Jordan was the happiest she'd ever seen. Like, in comparison to the Jordan that she saw the week before at the wedding, this was a stark contrast. Uh, Jordan had told her that the night before, when the two had returned home from dinner, Cody stayed behind in the garage. She told her friend that she went into the house and that when she went back out into the garage, she saw Cody getting into a black car with some friends who were in town visiting specifically from Washington State. The following day after that, when Jordan was interviewed by detectives, she told them that she had received a text from Cody stating that he was going to hang out with his friends from out of town. Interestingly, Jordan also told detectives that Cody had told her that if ever anyone came into town to visit, he would take them specifically to Glacier National Park. Okay. Which, I mean, okay, so... They lived in Kalispell, Montana, and it's, like, right there. It's, like, the gateway. Now, this was, like, an hour drive from their home to the location that he met his untimely death. But, you know, like, the entrance to the park is, like, right there. The Like, it's within the town or something like that. Like, I've seen... The, I can see it in my in my head. So, I can understand why if somebody came into town, you'd want to take them there. Especially, like, if you live in a state where you've got spectacular national parks and things of that nature. Something you want to take the tourists to do. But, nothing about this seemed right. Also, Jordan's nonchalant, non-pulsed attitude with police. She just didn't seem faced. Like, she could give she couldn't care less she gave zero fucks that day so after cody had been missing for 48 hours friends and family came to jordan and cody's home to help get to the bottom of this disappearance during that visit jordan was extremely inconsistent and behaved bizarrely at one point she took her ring off and threw it across the room and one of her friends was like okay that's enough i gotta go and I don't want to have anything to do with this until this comes to a resolve. Because you're not acting right. This does not feel right in my spirit. On July 11th, Jordan presented an email to her coworker friend. It might have been on the, it might have been on the 10th, 10th or the 11th. This is all within like a couple of days of this accident. It's not even an accident of this fall we'll call it that 
she presents an email to her coworker friend from an from a man named Tony. Just Tony. Not Tony the Tiger. Just Tony. Stating that Cody was dead and basically there was no need to search for him any further. Call off the search party. So the friend is shook as shit like as she should be. And and anyone I think would be if your work bestie was like, hey girl, hey, I just received this email from someone that I've never met before who only goes by one name, Tony. And he doesn't say red rum, but he is definitely saying that my husband is dead. And she's just like so chill about it as she's telling her this. And so her friend's like, girl, if you don't take your rabbit ass down to the police station and let them know what is happening like expeditiously we gonna have some problems and so she does you know so then (laughs) with a search party in tow right jordan and the group converge upon the national park on the first day of the search the work bestie was like, let me tell you something. We were putting in work. We were doing our due diligence, looking everywhere, posting flyers, and my homegirl wasn't doing nothing. No, she was kind of cooling, digging in the scene with the gangster lane. She just was not helping. Look for her husband of a week who was missing. So, like, Spidey's are tingling, you know. The day after that, when the group returned to continue searching for Cody, Jordan was said to have been like a guided missile going straight for the off the beat, you know, off the beaten path location, climbing over the retaining wall, which everybody was like, but why would Cody go over a retaining wall? Like, none of this made sense. And But she was just like, she said that, The Holy Spirit basically told her that this would be the area in which Cody would be found. And so she was just following the Holy Spirit all the way back down that rocky slope. And when she got down there to the ledge, she pointed out Cody's body pretty matter-of-factly like, There he is! Told you guys! Yep, there he is. Alright, so search is called off now, right? What's next? Funeral. And then, like, no police, right? Seriously. So, she gets... She points him out. This is ridiculous, you know. Um, His body is lying below in the ravine. His shoes are feet away from his body. Yet, there's a piece of black fabric that is really close to his body. Um, Like... With her husband's remains located, Jordan callously, as I just said, like as an asshole, but I was being serious, callously said now that Cody's body was recovered that they could have the funeral and the cops would no longer be involved. Like she thought that it was just going to be an up, he slipped and he fell. That's it. But alas, the Kalispell police were collecting evidence against Jordan. 16 days following the discovery of Cody's body, 
Jordan was said to have been texting friends throughout his funeral service. When his mother tried to console her, she sat there stone-faced and had no words for her mother-in-law. Shortly after Cody's funeral, FBI and police confronted Jordan with the overwhelming amount of evidence that they had collected linking her to his death, which in, which would include, you know, cell phone, triangulation, all sorts of stuff, like how her story didn't add up, that black piece of fabric, all sorts of stuff. During her interrogation, Jordan initially told police that the couple argued and then he went when he went to grab her arm, she just pushed him out of the in the heat of the moment. She then said that Cody made the statement that like he could basically stand on that cliff's edge with a blindfold on and not fall. And so she also then told the detectives that as the two stood on the cliff arguing Cody's back was facing her and she pushed him like like she let that part slip out too like there's like a lot of shit to this okay so then she also said because Jordan was just all over the place she stated that he went to grab my arm and coat and I said no I'm not going to let this happen let this happen this time I'm going to defend myself so I let go and I pushed and he went over and then I took off and went home. So it's like a lot. Like she was all over the place. But on September 9th, 2013, Jordan Lynn Graham was arrested formally uh, for the murder of her newlywed husband, Cody Johnson. Three days later, she was released from police custody and placed under house arrest until her trial began December 9th in the Missoula Federal Court. On December 12th, the court was shocked to learn that Jordan had taken a surprise plea deal wherein she would plead guilty to second-degree murder and a 30-year sentence in exchange for first-degree murder and lying to law enforcement before the jury was even set to begin considering the state's case against Jordan. So this came in, like, at the 12th hour. While initially... um. Jordan seemed fine with that plea agreement. <laughs> Just like Jeremy Strohmeyer, Jordan decided to request a new trial. Now, she claimed that the plea agreement she made was illusionary and a hollow formality after allegedly reading a memo from the prosecution, which referred to her to the case as being premeditated and that the state would be pursuing a 50-year sentence. So Jordan's request was denied when she appeared for sentencing on March 27, 2014. The judge decided that we were going to be sticking to the original agreement and she was going to serve 30 years. Whew. And so that's what she's been doing. So... What had happened is this. Mm. You never know who the fuck you're marrying. There's that. Um. Let's go back to case number one. 
there's something really off about the Rostin clan. Um, I, I don't know what's fact and what's fiction as far as the Israeli issues. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what's fact. I don't know what's fiction when it comes to what happened in Israel. And then when he came back to the States, a lot of it just seems really outlandish. It almost sounds as if like it was just attention grabby. Like, I don't necessarily think that he had a great time over there in Israel, but I really... I really don't think that all of the stuff he wrote about happened. And I think that, like, his parents just went along with it because whatever. I don't even know. Like, I don't even know. It's just wild. What I do know is that the evidence pointed towards him losing his shit on that cruise with Karen. Like... He had been so controlled when they were dating and throughout the engagement, basically setting the trap um, so that she would be secure and feel secure in that relationship, only to lure her in and then not be what he had presented himself to be. And... I think that pressure was mounting. There's no telling what he could have been facing. Um, there's no telling why he would push her off the boat. Besides it just being a, an argument. And just like the second case, you know, it shit happens. But then to scramble and try to cover it up and then like come up with like all of these outlandish assertions of your innocence but to try to put your wife's death on two unsuspecting cruise goers like that's crazy um just super crazy um and definitely he deserved the sentence that he received and I'm glad that you know, the powers that be were like, you know, 14 years is not enough. The judge said that he had never seen that kind of brutality at the time when Karen's body was recovered and obviously photographs were shared in court of the condition of her body. She'd been beaten. She'd been strangled. He murdered her. So he absolutely deserves the time that he got. Uh, there's, I feel like maybe the cookie, maybe, maybe everything was going to crumble around him or something and he just lost control. Who knows? He just, just, just probably just didn't feel in control. And that's just ridiculous. That's no, there's no sense in murdering somebody just because you don't have fucking control. Man up. Oh, and then down to Montana, up to Montana. Let's go out to Montana. Let's go up to, over up there to the treasure state. As many people had said before, they believed that Jordan Lynn Graham was 
in love with the idea of being married. Like, I guess the word, the sound of it, people calling her Mrs. I don't know what she crafted in her mind as to what she thought marriage was going to be like. Marriage is what you make it. Every relationship is different. There's that. Um, I understand, like I said earlier, the apprehension about having sex, considering the fact that she had abstained her entire life and, you know, was nervous because her husband was potentially more experienced. I mean, they didn't say that he had been a virgin at the time of their marriage. So, you know, it's safe to speculate that he at least had had sex before and that intimidated her for sure. You can tell because she had some kind of weird notion that he, I mean, and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know what he was into. Chef don't judge, but I don't know what he was into. I don't know what he may have mentioned to her in passing. Um, but whatever it was or wasn't said in her mind, she was afraid of kinky sex. She was afraid of, I think she's probably afraid of everything, including missionary, to be perfectly honest with you. She, I think she was just fucking afraid of having sex and that's okay. That's okay. It's okay. Killing your husband because you're afraid to consummate your marriage is not okay. End of story. Concocting a wild-ass cockamamie story that includes a dummy email address, a fake guy named Tony, friends from Washington State, and a black car. That is where, you know, you lose me, ma'am. Like, I can understand being afraid of getting in trouble for what you've done. But, like, you concocted a huge lie. You had people searching for him. You were right there with him. You knew exactly where the hell he was. You were unfazed. The fact that she was so unpulsed. Like, I mean, like, some people said that they didn't believe that she loved him ever. Like, she was just, you know, this is, this is what they say I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to marry somebody and have a family so on and so forth and even if I'm miserable I'll be miserable because it's my responsibility those are all a bunch of excuses coming out of her mouth that she was giving people because if she really wanted I I understand like the shame or the embarrassment of calling off an engagement I can understand the like okay so then this does this isn't gonna work and that shame because it was like a weekend but it really felt as if there was no effort put in on her part whatsoever to even like try to like be a wife at all like it's like the first week like you're supposed to be floating like what I mean, I don't know, but I mean, like I said, 
you can look at, you can go ahead and look up the interrogation videos on YouTube. It's realistically just how dry and, like, her, her lack of compassion, that was just very telling and jarring. And so, therefore, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, I think it kind of was kind of premeditated. If she blindfolded him and he thought that, ooh, I'm getting a surprise, and the surprise was getting pushed off of a cliff, it's really horrible. That is not how you treat somebody, as especially not how you treat somebody who, like, it seemed like he was really trying to, like, tenderly navigate through these uncharted waters with her together as a team and she just wasn't with it from the word go it's tragic all right guys i got nothing else to say i it's it's heartbreaking it's really sad to think about people getting married and thinking that they're gonna be starting their lives with the person that they love only to be killed while on their honeymoon or within the first few days it's tragic anyways guys i'm kimberly i am your host of what had happened a true crime podcast i will be back way quicker than i was the last time promise um let me hit you with some of that beautiful like outro music i'll be back like in a week or two promise